On this edition of Good Morning Hamilton's podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamperin today. We're going to be chatting about a new program available in Hamilton for home buyers who may not qualify necessarily, normally, but need some money for a down payment. It's a really interesting idea. We'll be talking to Terry Cook about that. We're also going to be chatting about Chinese police stations in Canada, that more of them apparently are out there than we knew, or so we're hearing. Uh, how is this happening? We're going to chat about hospital stays. There are people who are staying in hospitals long after they need to be. Why is that happening? Dollar stores, you probably shopped at a dollar store lately or some sort of bargain store. They are everywhere now. They are growing. We'll get into that one. Low interest rates. Hey, more on the money. Don't expect low interest rates anytime soon. And to wrap things up, everybody's talking about what the Maple Leafs should do. We will too. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is a new program that is being put out there for local renters. Um, probably, we'll find out the details in just a second, probably more leaning towards low income, though I'm not sure that's exclusively it. The idea here is that there will be a pool of money that will be created where they can tap into this to help them get money for a down payment and then in time pay it back so others can do the same. It's a really interesting concept. I don't know if it's unique. Again, we'll find out in just one second. Uh, You know what? I know who can tell us though. Uh, Terry Cook is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation who joins us now. Terry, how are you? I am excellent, Scott Radley. Normally I'd be talking to you in a sweaty gymnasium somewhere, but, uh, and (laughs) we'd be talking about sports, but I'm happy to talk about, uh, affordable home ownership. Well, th- I mean, this is this is an interesting idea for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, where did the concept come from, first of all, to do something like this? Has, does it exist elsewhere that we are copying, or is this something we're making up? No, it does exist. In fact, uh, Community Foundation is partnering to do two previous projects that are presently under construction in Upper Stony Creek and Winona, in those cases, it's with a partner called Trillium Housing, which is a national nonprofit. And the um, the order of magnitude there is there are a couple of townhouse projects, uh, about 70 or 80 units, and about 20% are for people in the low to moderate income range, first-time home buyers. Uh, so the concept isn't unique, but what is unique about this is that Hamilton East Kiwanis are probably the largest owners of scattered single units on the lower city in Hamilton. They have several hundred. Uh, They were going to put these on the market in order to finance some new multi-res construction. And their their CEO, Brian Sibley, said, you know, uh, that would be losing an opportunity. We really should think about providing an opportunity for existing tenants of social housing or people on the wait list uh, to become first-time home buyers, and generally the the impediment there is not the monthly payment. Oftentimes, people are paying more in rent than they would pay in in mortgage payments. It's coming up with a down payment, mm. and and that's really what this program is all about. And what it'll do is both help first-time buyers create some equity because uh, renters have missed that whole window that those of us fortunate enough to own have have been the beneficiaries of in the last decade or two where we've created wealth in a nest egg, uh, but it also will free up pressure within social housing so that others that are presently unserved on the waiting list will find 
accommodation, rental accommodation. So it, it's got numerous virtues. You just said something, though, that I did not realize this about this. So this is not a situation where the people who are in this program go out and look all over the city for any available house for sale and then tap into this program. This is for specific houses they are renting already that Kiwanis owns. That's correct. Either they're, in some cases, it will be people buying the unit unit that they've been renting. In other cases, um, there may be units that the present renters have vacated, and if if incumbent renters uh, don't have the capacity or are not interested in purchasing, then they'll be made available to folks on the waiting list. Okay, and and that's because these are older, scattered units that Kiwanis need to dispose of so that they can come up with the financing to build, in essence, townhouse or apartment projects that will get greater efficiency of scale uh, for the future. Okay, now if we're talking about, um, and you mentioned low income or lower income, does that mean that Kiwanis would be selling these to these people at market value or at market value when they purchase them or something below that that would allow a lower income person to qualify? Because we know what houses cost in the city right now. And right. even if you could get a down payment, people in the middle or lower incomes couldn't often afford it. So are they getting the uh, a less than Kiwanis could get if they put it on the market? Uh, no, these these will be sold at, at or about market values. Okay. Um, and to be clear, um, this would not be the deep core lowest income residents of social housing. Those folks will need to continue to have subsidization and, and rental accommodation available. This would be a low to moderate income. Generally, we've targeted kind of fifty to $70,000 annual family income. And so there are folks who, who um, are are working, uh, but they're working at the lower end of the scale, and they simply don't have the nest egg, the down payment to get into the market. And and where the pool comes into play is that it's providing very low interest second mortgages that are only repayable when the property is sold, and they're only repayable with a, a small interest charge, below market interest charge. It, it, uh, so it, it really is a leg up into the rental market for that uh, income bracket within social housing presently. This kind of almost sounds like a rework or a re- a newer version of Habitat for Humanity, where you build your house and you contribute to it and then eventually you own it. I mean, I know it's not the same, but it, it sounds like it's in the same vein at least. Yeah, I, w- I would say, I mean, Habitat does amazing things. Um, their whole concept is attached to sweat equity. Sure, sure. Um, in this case, there's no sweat equity, but it, it is predisposed to serve existing tenants of social housing that may have the capacity to buy with some help and or people on the waiting list. And it's being done at scale. Uh, most habitat projects are, are, are kind of onesies and twosies because they depend on volunteer labor. Um, in this case, there there are potentially hundreds of units available that over the next decade or so are going to be uh, sold into the markets so that we can finance newer, 
uh, more energy efficient and and somewhat higher density social housing. Okay. So one of the things, there's a piece in the spec that people can read about it. Um, One of the questions here is, uh, reading, it says, let me just read the line here. After covering up to 40% of a down payment and helping tenants qualify for their first mortgage, they don't require any payback any payment back for 25 years. So this was interesting to me. So if you're not requiring any money back from these people for 25 years, eventually they will pay it back. But does that mean that once this $3 million is spent at the beginning to help all these people get homes, there could potentially be a 25 year period of not doing this until the money starts coming back in. And then 25 years from now, there will be another group of these, or how would that work if that money is out and not available to you for that time? Right. So all of this money ultimately will be recirculated within the charitable sector. And that that's the benefit, right? You're putting the money into play to do good things. And then it, ultimately, at some point, there will be a payback. The experience with most first-time buyers will be that they will likely own this property for five to 10 years, sell it into the market, get an appreciation, and probably trade up. And and so, in fact, the, the cycle time on this, it, while it could potentially in some cases be 25 years, is more than likely going to be substantially shorter to that, shorter time period than that, which will allow us to redeploy the capital and do more of this in a shorter time frame. It is a uh, it is a fascinating concept to uh, to try and give people a bit of a help because as I say everybody understands what uh, what it costs these days to try and get into the housing market and uh, it is uh, it's certainly an interesting concept. Uh, Terry Cook, the president and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks, Scott. That is uh, as I say. I mean, if you are the idea here, and you heard Terry say this, the idea here is not to give housing to the lowest of the low income who could never pay it back. That's a different thing altogether. This is for someone who may be close, but can't get over the hump. It's, it's, it is a concept that, you know, we need all levels of housing in this city. And it's an interesting idea. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A number of unofficial Chinese police stations that were operating in Canada. You probably heard something about this. And you may have heard a number of weeks ago that such things were also operating south of the border in the United States. Well, the Americans seem to take action on it very quickly. The Canadians is taken longer to make anything happen. And earlier this week, we learned um, through the minister, the public safety minister, Marco uh, Menachino, that there actually could be more Chinese police stations operating in Canada than we originally knew about. I want to bring in Christian Luprecht. He's a professor at Royal Military College, <coughs> excuse me, and Queen's University. Uh, he joins us now. Christian, thank you for doing this today. Good morning. So how do we find this stuff out now? Shouldn't this have been obvious once they started investigating this months ago? Uh, so it appears that the government is taking greater interest in the matter. So one of the questions, of course, also has came out of the uh, uh, Member of Parliament, Michael Chong, affair is uh, what the government has known all along, what was uh, coordination issues that never made it to the cabinets, uh, the ministers and the prime minister's attention, and what perhaps was 
either benign neglect or plausible deniability in the sense that the government didn't want to know and pretend that these things were not happening. Uh, and so the right people were intentionally not shown the right documents. These are all reasons why we need a public inquiry, uh, because this sort of, uh, pardon the pun, uh, Chinese water torture here uh, in terms of details that keep on coming to the surface. If nothing else, it should give Canadians a very serious concern about their national security posture uh, and about whether this government actually has a solid handle on this file. This is why we have and countries have a security intelligence service, that is to say, CSIS in this country, precisely to protect the institutions of the state. And in our case, of course, to protect the democratic institutions of the state, including all Canadian citizens from coercion, harassment, intimidation, subversion, subterfuge. And it seems that the government of Canada uh, is not able to respond in the fashion, does not have the domain awareness that we would expect from a government that should have uh, the security of its citizens and the security of its democratic institutions as job one. Pierre Polyev this week uh, referred to David Johnson and his role as special rapporteur as a fake job. And some people thought that was accurate. Some people thought that was snarky and unnecessary. Nonetheless, on that point, with all the stuff that's going on now and this coming out now and the other things that we've heard about, truly does David Johnson have, is his role even necessary or is an, is an inquiry, an investigation, whatever you want to call it, so obviously needed that we don't really need a special rapporteur to tell us that? Well, there should be pros and cons about an inquiry. So one way to look at uh, David Johnson is that this is somebody who has a long-standing relationship with the prime minister and his family. So it was somebody who was going to give the prime minister the answer that he was likely going to look for. Another is that the prime minister was simply looking to kick the can down the road, trying to buy time until parliament rises on June 23rd in the hopes that the noise all dies down and by the fall, the government can get back to its agenda. This, of course, has worked in the past. Uh, so uh, so why not try it now? The third would have been really a missed opportunity in the sense that the prime minister here could have gone to the opposition parties and could have gotten a consensus around David Johnson and who and, and or who to appoint. And I think the government, the government could have gotten some consensus around David Johnson and his mandate from the opposition parties. Because, of course, I mean, this was the youngest dean of the law school at McGill. This was he's led two of the most important universities in the country, McGill and the University of Waterloo and did so very successfully. He was governor general. I mean, this is a very distinguished individual. And I think the the, the problem here is that uh, he could have had the integrity to do this, but unfortunately the government decided rather than to build a consensus across benches uh, to politicize the issue. Yeah, why? Okay, so it, it does seem hopelessly politicized like so many other things. And, and that was kind of my question is that it, it seems, I don't hear a lot of people, I don't read a lot of people saying, oh, nothing going on, nothing to see here. Like, I think, does not everybody agree that something is going on and we need to find out what is going on? Well, certainly if you look at the polls, Canadians seem to agree that something is going on and that something needs to be done, uh, both in terms of the polling numbers on this particular issue and in terms of the polling numbers for both the government 
and the uh, and and his majesty's official opposition uh, the the and of course the challenge is that there's been a lot of options on the government's table if you look at the report the 2019 report uh, the unclassified version of which is on the website of the national security intelligence committee of parliamentarians that provided a detailed assessment into what was happening a detailed options analysis then there's the dominic leblanc report that again provides a detailed options analysis to the prime minister there's a lot of things the prime minister could be doing right here right now today giving an explicit um, foreign interference mandate to the integrated national security enforcement teams that exist in every major city, including in the GTA, for instance, to actually have a clear definition of what constitutes foreign interference. There is no such consistent definition in either law or regulation in Canada, which makes it very difficult to investigate if the agencies don't know what exactly they're supposed to investigate. Um, return the subversion mandate to CSIS uh, that was removed after the Cold War. So there's there's lots of things the government could be doing that don't require a public inquiry. And yet what we seem to see is uh, opportunities simply to dither and that any it's very reactionary. Anytime something gets published or sort of something comes out sort of in public, then we get sort of these half-baked measures. Now we hear that the government is considering a foreign interference registry. I would have to think by the time that actually gets tabled, it's going to be so watered down to ensure that it doesn't capture any members of the Canadian elite that have a pecuniary interest in this or in a way that it could become a danger to the government. And look, the way the reason the government, I think, doesn't want a public inquiry is last time the Liberal Party of Canada had a public inquiry, the Garbery inquiry, it was out of power for nine years. And I think if we had a public inquiry here, uh, it would make the Gomer inquiry look like child's play. So I well, think uh, there's good reason for the government to try to hold out for its own electoral fortunes. Yeah, maybe, Chris. I, listen, I appreciate it, Chris. I, just, I, I, I look at this now, and I think a lot of other people do too, and think if David Johnson comes back after all we've heard, and we, unfortunately we have to run, but if he comes back after everything that's come out since he was even named Special Rapporteur and says we don't need any further inquiry, I think that may look worse for Trudeau that he handpicked someone who would protect him almost than if you get into inquiry. But that's a, that's a debate for another day. We'll, we'll, we'll tackle that one when we see what happens with, uh, on the 23rd, I believe, is the day now that, uh, that Johnson is going to come back with something. Uh, Christian Luprecht from the Royal, Royal, Royal Military College and Queen's University. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Have a great morning. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Everybody understands and has heard that Healthcare is expensive. Staying in hospital is expensive. Every night in hospital, I don't even know what it is, but it's, it's hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars for a night when you consider staff and overhead and all the other stuff. It is very expensive to hospitalize people. Essential, necessary at times, but very expensive. And yet there are some people, apparently, who after treatment has been given to deal with whatever it is, whatever the condition is, whatever the situation that has brought them into the hospital, are staying in hospital. And the question is why? Well, my next guest has been studying this. Uh, His name is Quentin Carfanini. He's a PhD student at Brock University. He joins us now. Quentin, thanks for doing this today. Hi, thanks, Rick. Thank you for having me. Uh, You're welcome. It's, um, so tell me why... You tell me, why are people staying? If they have been treated, if their immediate acute concerns have been dealt with, why are some people staying in hospital beds? Uh, Well, the simple fact is that there's just nowhere for them to go. Um, And a lot of people want to uh, look at hospitals as maybe doing a little bit 
if they can do a little bit more. But the fact is there's maybe not the community resources available for these patients to be discharged wherever they need to go, whether that be back home or to LTC facilities. Okay, so uh, that clearly does not encompass everybody. So when you say they don't have anywhere to go, what kind of situations are we talking about? Because I mean, if, if you perhaps or myself or someone else were finished with our treatment, we go home. Uh, right. what, what would be the circumstances? Who would be the they who could not have somewhere to go? Okay. Well, in the, the study that we just published in, in March, uh, we found uh, patients with four um, types of requirements that are more likely to be uh, staying in the hospital long stay. And those would be those with bariatric requirements, whether that would be um, oversized beds, larger doorways, uh, or other specialized equipment uh, that are needed at their discharge destination. They would be more likely to um, uh, have a delayed discharge. Those with more behavioral um, requirements, those with more disruptive behaviors that may require um, more personal one-on-one attention, requires a lot of man hours uh, from either nurses or social workers that uh, potentially can't be available at the community level, um, as well as those with feeding um, requirements. Maybe they don't need non-traditional feeding methods and those with uh, any type of disease uh, or infection uh, that may require um, wards separate from other patients that maybe not, uh, it, that's not able to be provided at the moment. Okay, so three of those four, I completely understand. The feeding thing, if it's now a new thing, you can't do that. I get that. Behavior, yes, I understand that. Uh, there was another one, and I'm just, it's slipping my mind. But the one I would ask about, particularly, is bariatric, because presumably, we're talking about people who are larger. Uh, yes. presumably they didn't get that way in the hospital. So they came into the hospital. So why could they not then go out of the hospital as well? Um, because a lot of the times they're not being discharged to another place in the hospital. So they come into the hospital, but then when they get discharged to another facility, that's um, off-site. I the see. Okay. So the hospital is able to carry these patients um, they're more uh, uh, equipped to do that. But then when you talk about going back home or other L- LTC facilities that may not have these sort of uh, equipment available. So I don't know if we, I don't know if it, if you've done it in your study to look into this, but um, obviously the things you're talking about suggests we need facilities or need some way to deal with this. Is it cheaper and I, I, I mean, I hate to even use the word cheaper because it's healthcare and it makes it sound wrong, but is it less expensive to build facilities like this and staff them and be able to move people who have these conditions into that? Or is it less expensive simply to keep them in the hospital? Uh, honestly, that's a, that's the, the real million dollar question right there is uh, the fact of the matter is I can't give you the answer just from the scope of the study that we did. Um, I know we're continuing to look into at Brock University more of the economic impact associated with these um, ALC patients and their um, their longer stays in the hospital. Um, so maybe, you know, when we continue to look at it, we'll be able to get a little bit more of a, a concrete answer. But um, at this point in time, we, we really don't have a, a sure answer on which one may be more expensive. How commonly is this happening? Is this often or are these rarities? It's in terms of the Niagara Niagara Health um, over a five year period, we had about uh, sixteen thousand entries in our in our database that we had. So that doesn't seem like a lot, but um, the fact is that 
a lot of these ALC patients are spending a lot of days compared to the average person. So even just one or two people spending 30, you know, 60, maybe six months in a hospital can be really um, uh, uh, detrimental to people who, uh, uh, you know, just need that bed for a couple of days and want to get out. How many patients is that patient preventing is that um, happening, Quentin? The support. Is that happening, Quentin? Up to six months, people are spending in the hospital for this. Yeah, it, it's even more. I think the highest one that we saw in our database was actually over two years. Wow! So just because um, they have no place to go or no place they can treat them. Yeah, exactly. So they're designated as ALC by their physician. They're they're ready to be discharged. There's just no way, nowhere for them to be discharged. Yes. It is uh, it's a fascinating story. People can find it. You can, the story is on the spec uh, right now. Obesity, behavioral issues, contributing to long stays in hospital. Brock University study finds. You can go read more about it there. Uh, the man behind that study, Quentin Carfagnini. Uh, really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That's what everybody's trying to do in business, right? You're trying to make lots of money. And how have we done that in the past? Well, we, businesses. You try to price your stuff at a way that is going to make you the most profit. That's, that's the way business works. And that sometimes means let's go into the ritzier, richer areas so that we can extract more money from buyers. However, there is a change seemingly going on, which is a bunch of companies that might have gone to the higher end and may still are also looking the other way. How do we get our products into dollar stores? How do we get our products into bargain stores so that we can grab that part of the market as well? Jay Rosenthal is co-host of the Peak Daily. Joins me now. Jay, how are you? Good. How are you? Good morning. I am great. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate this. This is, this is uh, I, I guess, logical and obvious, and yet still at the same time, it's sort of surprising because I think there was always this sense that if your stuff was in a dollar store, quite honestly, it was crap. And that's, that's, they're trying to change that story completely here. Yeah, dollar stores are now the new hot thing in this economy. I think we're looking at three uh, intersecting trends that we talk about a lot on the peak. One is just a proliferation of dollar stores. Like I think there's 10 in Hamilton alone. I live in Toronto. I could literally walk five minutes to six of them, and they're going to add another 700 or so to the 1,400 current stores. That's Dollarama just in Canada. But by way of contrast, in the States, Dollar General (laughs) opened... 3,000 stores between 2019 and 2021. So this is a real trend. Uh, the second is consumers trading down in terms of brands. Uh, this is an inflationary measure. People are looking for less expensive options. You don't need to look any further than sort of the success of no frills right now. Uh, this Just this week, Walmart said their, their earnings were up 8% over last quarter as sort of younger and wealthier people move down. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah. look, there was yeah. a time, again, when you would say, you know what, I, again, I don't want to go buy at a dollar store because it's cheap, it'll fall apart. Now I think some people are saying, first of all, leaving what we're talking about just out for a second, even if I buy something for a dollar and it eventually breaks, it's still going to be way cheaper to replace it than to spend $20 on the same thing for a really good one. So I think people's thoughts are changing. But again, you've got uh, Heinz and you've got um, uh, what a, a bunch of the other ones here, uh, <laughs> Razors. And everyone now, Smuckers, is looking to get into this market because this is where people are shopping. It is. And it's not unlike, I think, other sectors, right? We've seen the apparel and sort of shoes. We know that there are products made specifically for outlets. 
right? So we see, you know, the Gap and Adidas yeah, and others yeah. that just make shop just for that clientele just in those stores. And as the proliferation of dollar stores sort of expands, these brands, as opposed to discounting heavily their sort of premium brands, they'd rather make brands at the right price for that audience so they don't have to take a hit on their more premium brands in other markets. So I, I think this is sort of a part of it is um, at, you know, part of the economy that's happening right now. Part of it is just the proliferation of dollar stores, which was a trend pre-pandemic and now. And so there's this sort of bifurcation or multi-stratus uh, stratas of where people are shopping and how. It's just the economy is really putting a bright light on this because people are want to spend less because they are uncertain about their economic future. Does that mean then that this is a moment, but five years from now, you and I are going to be talking again about why are all these dollar stores shutting down because the economy is zooming and taking off? You know, it's interesting because when we were growing up, I'm probably much older than you, like there were dollar store type places that were like one-off mom and pop shops, sort of five and dimes. But this is much more, let's call these institutional dollar stores and dollaramas where they actually have real buying power and they carry their own brands. And I think sort of bigger brands want to be in there because they are seen as sort of almost juggernauts in the uh, retail space. So I think this might be different than it was in the past. I think dollar stores are here to stay. I think people really like shopping there. They know exactly what they want to get, how to get them. I mean, you know, how many bins can you buy for your house? I don't know, but we have like 3,000 of them that we bought at Dollarama. <laughs> so I think really this is um, filling consumer needs, brands seeing that, plus the proliferation of these stores and the density of them. It really is a trend that I think we won't be talking about that in 10 years, uh, but we will be talking about how brands are now making products specifically for this retail. But do you think it's going to change then? Because right now it seems like the, the move is pretty much everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of them are trying to get in there. Do you, will this, will the focus narrow in time? Once we, once we get past this recession that apparently we're waiting for it to land and that's what everyone's gearing up for. Do you see what people will shop for at dollar store narrowing, or is this going to be the new department store where you would go and everything is there? So let's just do our, all of our shopping there. I don't think it'll be for all of our shopping. I think there's still obviously need for grocery stores in particular. People want to uh, have sort of that array in a grocery store setting. But if you know what you want, and you know, you can get it for a less expensive price at a Dollarama or a dollar store. I think I think they are here to stay. I think people's shopping habits do change in times like this, where they see they can get value at stores like Dollarama for some things, and there may be other places they want to get higher end goods for sure. So I think it's a trend that is here to stay. And I think it's hard to shake people's habits once they find something that they find value in. Uh, and, and a shopping experience and that they certainly are convenient just because of the density of the number of retail. So I think it's something that um, is an interesting trend to watch and one that I believe we won't be talking about going away anytime soon. And you're right. And, and one of the things is it's under a different name now, but these have been around forever. I, I mean, I remember going down to Westdale, there was a byway down there or, you know, like the, it's under different names, but there's always, there have always been these kind of stores in every city. They're just better now. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't mean to, I don't mean to cast shade on the old ones, but like you can get better, more consistent products and they actually have the same products over time as opposed to the model previously where these sort of discount stores would buy whatever they could out of, you know, people going bankrupt or things that were on the shelf too long. Like they were sort of getting odds and ends. Now, as this story says, like we, they are getting products custom made for that yes. audience. They are getting their own branded products, whether it be bins or trash bags or whatever it is. So I think they're, they're, it's actually a more robust offering than it was in days gone by. You know what? I first noticed this. Uh, one of the things that I like, I don't, it's kind of weird. It's kind of gross. I like drinking coconut water. 
Uh, don't know, you know, it's, it's an Good acquired deals. taste. But you go to the dollar store and there is coconut water specifically canned for, and that's the first time I saw that, that the branding was specifically for the dollar store. I hadn't seen that before. I'm sure there are many other products. I just never noticed. Well, now we know a lot about you, Scott. Well, now you do. But it's, but it, it's to your point, though, that this is there are now places, companies, businesses that are branding specifically. They are going after this. It's not just that this was leftover merchandise in the back warehouse, so let's sell it for a buck now to get rid of it. So it's, yeah. a, it's a fascinating way things are going here, for sure. Uh, Jay Rosenthal, wish we had a lot more time. Uh, great chatting with you. Really appreciate this. Uh, co-host of the Peak Daily. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for the time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tiff Macklin, who is the governor of the Bank of Canada, who, by the way, has a name, when his parents named him Tiff, they had to know that he was going to be involved in finance somehow. It just, it's got that the Tiff. It sounds like he should be at the country club. But anyway, Tiff Macklin, the, bank, the governor of the Bank of Canada, was giving a speech the other day, yesterday, and warned that, you know what, if you are standing by waiting for interest rates to drop back to where they were so you could borrow money towards a house at 1% or whatever you were able to get it for, 2% for the last number of years, um, you might want to just forget about that because according to him, not happening, not anytime soon, not certainly in the next little while. I want to bring in... Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, one of our good friends here on the show. Dr. Lee, thank you for this today. Uh, My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. This is uh, probably not all that surprising considering we got a report two or three days ago that inflation had nudged back up. I don't see that with inflation possibly on the rise again, that interest rates are going to plummet because that would defeat the purpose. But I think there were an awful lot of people who were kind of with their fingers crossed behind their back, hoping that this might be a shorter term thing. It doesn't sound like that's going to be the case. Right. Um, and But let me even go bigger picture. And, and just for everyone, for your listeners' uh, benefit, I, I was a mortgage manager in the 70s and 1980s, where I lent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in mortgage lending on houses, on uh, condos, single families, duplexes, garden homes, townhouses, cottages, seasonal properties, and rural properties. And I did that for a living for nine years before I went back to school and then became a professor. Um, And of course, I've studied interest rates ever since. This comes up all the time in our classes. Um, The last five years, when rates went down to, you know, uh, the uh, prime went down to 0.25 and mortgage money in the ones, was a fool's paradise. It was unreal. It was a fake world we were living in. No less than Muhammad Al-Aryan, extremely distinguished economist. He's now the Chancellor of Cambridge University in UK and the chief economist of, of a huge financial institution in Europe, has said, you know, it was a bubble. It was, we were living in a bubble. And for those who say, well, that's just a, your opinion or your assertion, This has been studied to death. Nobel Prizes have been issued on this subject. What I'm going with this is is that the long-term interest rate is typically inflation plus one or two points. The interest rates, the central bank prime rate of the last five years was way below. It was not sustainable. It was sabotaging pensions. It was sabotaging investments because it didn't reflect the true cost of funds. So, Where I'm going with that, for those who say, well, let's go back to the last five years. The last five years was so abnormal. 
and unsustainable. People should just delete it from their memory. Just delete it. It was, it was, it was a, the central banks, let me be more blunt. The central banks, and especially let's, we're in Canada, let's talk about the Bank of Canada, made an enormous monetary mistake in driving rates that low. And I know people said, don't you understand there was a pandemic? We had to respond. There was a crisis. Interest rates, the central bank rate, never went that low in the Great Depression when unemployment ran to 35%. One in three people were unemployed, and they never drove the rates that low. In the Second World War, that's the war where millions of people died, died. We never drove the interest rates that low. So what I'm saying is, is that these last five years were so weird, so unsustainable, people should not be using that as a reference point. Yeah, assume I mean, if, you got a, if you got a mortgage in that time or got a loan, assume you won the lottery and you were one yeah. of the lucky ones, but you know yeah. what, not, that doesn't happen every time. Yeah, most people don't win a lottery ticket. Most people don't. Those people who got mortgage lending at 1, 1.5, 1.9, okay, they temporarily won a lottery. But it wasn't real. It wasn't sustainable. I got my first mortgage in 1978. I bought a row house garden home in Ottawa. And I got 10.5%. And I thought it was a bargain. A bargain at 10.5. And so if you look at the long... People say, well, that's just you. And that's just that then. Um, if you look at the long-term record in Canada, the States, the, the last five years has never, ever been accomplished. In other words, the last five years was an anomaly was an exception on steroids times a million. Interest rates don't normally go that low because fund borrower lenders have to be compensated for their money, for, for lending their money. So where I'm going with this, I am not suggesting we're going to go to 10 or 12 or 14%, not at all. What I'm saying is that it was not realistic. It was not credible. So lenders, I agree with uh, uh, Governor Macklem. I just wished he'd gone further and said, and by the way, we, the Central Bank of Canada, want to apologize to you for creating this false expectation in the last five years that money could be had sustainably at so cheap it was practically free. That we were sold a line of goods by the Central Bank. We were given, we were, they created expectations that were wrong. And that we can't now. keep now, for sure. Yeah, and they Ian, can't keep them, so now they're correcting them. Got to jump in. Uh, always love having you on. Thanks for bringing your expertise this morning. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Dr. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Those who watch the Leafs and were, you know, were, we're probably far enough away from that now that the crying has stopped and the gnashing of teeth has abated a bit. But there is lots of talk now about what should be done. We don't know who's going to do it yet. We don't know if Kyle Dubas is going to be back as GM or whatever. But nonetheless, what should the Leafs do? And we're whittling this down to keep it nice and short and nice and simple and nice and tight. The core four, as they're called, Nylander, Marner, Matthews, Tavares, what should they do? Let me bring in Stephen Ellis, who's a journalist with an associate editor with the Daily Faceoff, joins us now. Stephen, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am, well, I am great, although I am, uh, I am as puzzled as everyone else by what the answer is to this. So, so I'm going to throw it to you first. You've got options. You do nothing. You bring them all back again, and you hope that the seventh time is a charm, or you move one or two or some combination, if Stephen Ellis was general manager of the Leafs, 
which would probably require a pay cut for you. But if Stephen Ellis was general manager of the Leafs, what would you do with these guys? Well, with that core four, I'd be keeping him. Um, and, and part of that is because you're looking at guys like Matthews and and Nylander. They're going to be free agents at the end of next season. So this could be kind of the, okay, this truly has to be the final chance here. You know, the, the team does have a kind of a clean slate where a lot of their forwards are going to be free agents this summer. So they can kind of make some changes there. But, you know, for as, as good or for as, as poor as maybe the core four played offensively in that last round, you know, a lot of the credit has to go to Sergei Bobrovsky, who just shut down Carolina in four overtimes last night. So we know he could be good. Uh, but you're also going to look at the fact that the depth scoring wasn't doing anything either. And that's been a huge issue for this team going forward in the last couple of years. So, you know, the, the top four players, I'd still argue, were some of the best players in that team. It's just, you know, they just didn't get goals. And a lot of that can be attributed to a goalie who right now is the best goalie in the playoffs. Okay, does that mean that you change nothing or do you need a coaching change to try and find the way to unlock some of that secondary scoring and find a way to get these guys to produce in the playoffs even if you run into a hot goalie or or again is it just that you know it was an unfortunate situation that Bobrovsky played like he had like a 10 million dollar goalie that he hasn't played like that in years but he just found it in time for them See, that, that's what I'm leaning towards. Um, I know that, that just sounds like an excuse because you can look at it and say, oh, well, they got beat by Tampa Bay Lightning, a team that also had a great goalie, or the year before that, the Montreal Canadiens, same thing. But, you know, with this case, it's, you know, look at the the coaching market right now. I don't think there's a better coach out there that would really make a huge difference. And I do believe that, you know, Kyle Dubas, you know, a lot of the work that he does to make this team cap compliant in the first place is quite incredible. But, you know, they've been able, like, you look at a guy like William Nylander, the one that everyone thinks that they got to trade him, but he's got one of the best contracts in the entire NHL, $6 million uh, for one more season. So, you know, you, you don't want to trade that if you don't have to. So you, that, you look at that core, and I don't think you get a player in return that makes that a fair deal. So, I'm looking at it. If you're going to make a change, it probably is the coaching uh, there. But I, I just don't think there's a coach that can really shake things up enough to to make that work. Last year was the summer where all the coaches were changing hands, like Paul Maurice and Bruce Cassidy. And you look at those guys, and they're both competing for a chance to play in the Stanley Cup final right now. I don't think there's a guy like that this year. Let me throw out a name for you. See how you feel about this one. Mike Babcock. <laughs> I I would be shocked <laughs> if he's an NHL head coach again. Yeah, no, I, I, I would be shocked if, uh, I'd be more than shocked. I would, I would literally, if Mike Babcock was ever rehired by the Leafs, I would go out and buy every lottery ticket because that would mean the world is spinning on a different axis than usual. The thing about Nylander though, because Tavares has a no trade, he's not going to be traded. You're not going to trade Austin Matthews unless, you know, he says he wants out, I don't think. Uh, Mitch Marner, uh, you know what, I think if you're the Leafs, you're terrified of trading a guy like that, that he comes back and becomes even better than he has been and you look like idiots. Nylander, the one thing is he's got a couple of years left on his deal, or a year left on his deal, and, and but you, as you say, he's got a really friendly deal. That's the guy you would think, if nothing else, could get you the return. He does, and he will have a modified no-trade clause for next season, but it's still, you know... <laughs> A guy like that, you're you, you throwing away someone who got nearly 90 points this year on a deal that you're never going to get. And the the issue with that is while that'd be great to, to make that trade, it's just, again, I don't know how you bring that value back to make it where you're making your team better if you're trading him. I just don't think that happens, you know? Like, the, the one thing also to keep in mind is, like, their starting goalie 
was hurt at the end of the playoffs and they were having to use a third stringer and that probably didn't help either. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors here, but when I look at that, I think you got to keep me later. You got one more year of him. If it doesn't work out, then you see what you do then. Then maybe you just lose him for nothing, but I think it's worth just trying because, you know, the, the, every core, look at the Washington Capitals. It took them forever to finally get it to work with the core they had, but they got it to work. Mm. And, you know, if the Leafs, something might click. They just need to get better depth. That's the thing I'm looking at here. Well, the, the one thing they have going for them is that in the Toronto Maple Leafs market, uh, even if you bring them back and everybody screams and loses their mind and threatens to throw shirts on the ice and everything else, they're still going to buy tickets. They're still going to watch on TV. I mean, it's kind of the most insulated market that you could try something like this and not worry that you're going to lose audience. So there is that. I mean, it doesn't really matter what they do. It doesn't change anything ultimately, economically, financially, bottom line. So they're, you know, they can do whatever they want, really. They could. And, you know, the fans will continue to support. And, yep. you know, obviously it, it, there's been a lot of issues over the last 20-ish years, but it just, it, you've got one of the best core fours in the league. <laughs> 56 years, Stephen. 56 years. <laughs> yes, yes. I was born six months after they won their last Stanley Cup. I've not been alive even to see an appearance in the Stanley Cup finals. It is 56 years of torment and groin kicking, you know, not literally, but by the Maple Leafs to their fans. It's... Uh, uh, Stephen Ellis with the Daily Face Off. Really appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks for taking time today. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.